Many people have problems with art and not with reality. So why is art different? It's pretty simple, right? This is knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. Bring it. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ando. Greetings, everybody. It's nice to have you back. Here we are at episode 99 already. We are creeping up on number 100. And uh, that means something, right? We'll see what happens next episode. More importantly, we have an enlightening conversation for you today with the indefatigable Klaus Timon. Klaus is a tremendously interesting fellow. He's a photographer, an artist. He co-founded a nonprofit called Project Pressure. He's an adventurer. So I invited him on the program because I figured he would have uh, many compelling things to say. And uh, indeed, I was right. We talked about a lot of themes, which I personally find of interest, about art in a greater social and global context, the development of projects, the role of ego in the arts, etc., etc. But I'm going to let the man tell it in his own words. So thank you for being here. Please check out Klaus's website. There's a ton of cool stuff on there. And we'll see you next time for the 100th episode. Enjoy my talk with Klaus. You are here mostly because of Peter Funk. Mm-hmm. Who uh, who told me about Project Pressure, mm-hmm. and then I started looking into uh, into what it is that you do, and then I saw that you do a lot of things. You're a busy man. You're all over the place. I follow you on Twitter, for example, so I can see. You know, here you are. You're in Mexico shooting, and then you're in Iran, and then you're. Uh, you know, you, you do a lot of different stuff. I like to say that I practice a lot. Mm. So. Um, in general, um, I I, um, I live in London now, and when I moved to London, I had this idea that the um, the English they have this obsession with uh, with royalty, and I'm just a humble guy from Denmark. So I thought, let me invent my own family crest. So I made my own family crest, which uh, consists of a crown. It has uh, three little dots on it, so it has a crown on it, and then it's like a like a shield, like a crest. <clears throat> It has a big mess. It's based on a grid system that's then distorted. So it's uh, creativity applied to systematic thinking, which kind of uh, filters through a lot of the work I do. Mm-hmm. Then it has a T in the middle, which is T for timing, and around it's like a little zigzag circle, which is a lion mouth because I'm a Leo. And then it has my year of birth, which is 1974. And then in the bottom right corner, there's a blank space, which is room for improvement. So, yeah, so I practice a lot. And I uh, do a lot of different projects, and they all kind of seem to some, somehow influence each other. There's feedback loops. There's different things going on all the time. And, and I've, I've really, I like it that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that I found particularly interesting is you don't seem to necessarily divide everything you do into compartments you know so a lot of people who work as um, commercial photographers make a living off photography they'll even have a website that's divided this is my personal work this is my 
professional work, et cetera, et cetera. And they essentially treat their professional work as uh, a necessity. And then the personal work is kind of more put forth, at least in a lot of cases. And it seems like for you, it's all mixed. And one thing leads to another. And then there's project pressure, which is also in the middle of everything. Obviously, I want to hear on that in a little bit. But it seems like you don't really divide between what you do. No, to some extent, I don't. And I, I think the um, when it when it comes to a lot of uh, a lot of the work I do, uh, it, it originates from the same place. Uh, for me, it's always about the storytelling. Uh, my my background is I grew up in Copenhagen, and uh, when I was fourteen or fifteen, there was a my dad was like, "Come on, lazy lazy teenager, get a job." And I was like flicking through the paper, and then there was this job at the canal tour. Um, basically photographing tourists. <clears throat> so I started doing that when I was 15. And then um, it was a really good, like, summer holiday job to have. It paid well, and we worked incredibly hard, like six days a week, 12-hour days, but made quite a bit of money for, for, for a teenager. So I bought my own camera kit and uh, started working when I was, like, 16 with some of the newspapers, like Extrablad, which is a, a big uh, Danish newspaper, Information, which is the... Um, the, the left wing and um, also basically to start working as a photojournalist and I never really got to go to university because my grades in gymnasium were pretty good but not exceptional so I had what's called a standby place at the university so you're basically guaranteed a, a spot the next year and I wanted to study media and Danish which is what could lead into the media industry and journalism and I had that kind of gap year and that gap year, I was like, well, if this photography, film, whatever I'm doing is going to work out, then let me continue with that. So I did that f- um, for a year and it, it well, here I am, still, do, are, still yeah. doing the same. Um, well, that's a testament to not waiting around either, you know, going out and getting stuff done. And it, it strikes me as especially, you know, if I'm thinking about that, you were shooting canal tour stuff on film at that point. So there was a whole logistical setup involved too. It's not like today where you can just email someone a photo or any of that. Like, Mm. you know, either you have to run and drop off the film for developing somewhere or someone else has to do it. And then there has to be some sort of connection to the customer where later they can get it unless you're shooting Polaroids. No, it it was definitely, it was a big logistical setup. So it was actually uh, plate cameras. So like old Linhoff cameras. You were shooting like four by fives? Yeah, we were shooting plate camera. So we had, we had two shots per boat. And the cameras didn't have light meters. So we basically taught ourselves to look at the sky, look at the light, and expose that way. And that's something I can still do. Mm. I remember once on a on a shoot, I've, I even forgot my flash and I forgot. No, I didn't run on my flash. I forgot my light meter. And I was just, I was just, pop it again, pop it again. And then I was like, okay, let's do that. Then now it's here. Mm. But anyway, so... <clears throat> I think my earlier year were informed by um, a, a desire to do storytelling. And in the beginning, I was uh, writing as well. Um, and I was uh, involved in various, uh, lot, lots of magazines and various magazine projects. And at some point, um, it was after we, uh, we did a magazine called Virus, which was in like 1999, um, that I did with a, with a journalist, uh, Matt Brugger. Um, and... That was, for me, it was too much organization because I was trying to get other people 
to work on it, to do stuff. And everybody else had a full-time job, whereas I had, I was, you know, self-employed. So I was used to working on a project basis and getting stuff done. And after that, I was thinking, well, maybe I need to do something that's just for me. Um, so in a little bit of influence by, by that kind of thinking of what, what's an interesting story and so on, I started working on a project called hybrids and, um, Hybrids for me was it was it was early early two thousand two thousand and four I think I started photographing, and it was at the not the emergence but it was early days of the internet. So all of these strange cultures, people with different backgrounds, all of a sudden found each other, and you you got clusters that wouldn't necessarily normally meet or meet before that, and all of a sudden they formed communities and did uh, gatherings and did events and it was it was really quite exciting because you had all this creativity forming and bubbling up and so I started uh, do- documenting hybrid cultures so everything from like gay rodeo in Los Angeles um, underwater striptease in Chile snow polo in uh, in Switzerland and tall bike jousting in Brooklyn so it ranges from a lot of diversity within like economic scale, who's rich and who's poor and uh, geographical and sexual orientation and everything else. So also I had uh, underground gardening in Tokyo and, and so on. And for me, that project was really about showing the diversity. And through that, there's a forced acceptance of tolerance. Because if you can take all of this on board and you can look at it, and I try to walk in not being judgmental of what people did, but just celebrating what they did, not judging them. That that project then, for me, that, that was very important. It was also, um, I it was probably my first big undertaking as an artist. That and I this did. was completely self-driven, right? Yeah, that was a self-driven project, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> And I was trying to make sense of it, and we're looking at uh, the book and uh, how to put the book together. And there's a lot of material there. There's a lot of material, and I was like, "How do we make sense of this?" And (laughs) and like, this is really difficult. And I was thinking about it. So we talked about having a foreword, having somebody else writing stuff, and my wife was just like, "But Klaus, you you really like David Strictly? Why don't you get him to do some drawings?" Um. So oh yeah, I contacted David Strictly and 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 he did some 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 drawings for the um, for the book. He Be- seems interested in doing the most. You know, he'll do we'll do anything. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely approachable. It was really cool, and it kind of made sense because how do you make sense of this? Uh, and you could you could put on a lot of adjectives and and talk about it in you know those long statements you get you get sometimes in your inbox for various openings and stuff. And I like I would like people just to judge for themselves, uh, because if I start analyzing and telling people what they should see and what my thought process was, it wouldn't just be a bombardment of information, of input, and everything else. And that's what I wanted. Well, it's a hybrid in and of itself. You're making a an art book essentially, or at least a document, uh, which traditionally would have a long winded introduction, explanation, whatever. But you're just going around that and letting it speak for itself, which is actually fairly rare. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and in, in somewhat ways, I've always done things my own way to some extent. Um, and for the 
good or the better or the bad. Uh, I'm not sure. Probably all of those things. Yeah, probably. And and also to the extent that um, I, of course, I've had a, a division between my artwork and my other work, but as my career has progressed and my, let's say, um, the projects I'm doing and I'm able to do, I get more influence over. I'm actually able to merge that together and come out with output and, and where it sits is not necessarily so important. If I shoot um, parkour in Gaza, which I did for New York Times, which is like a hybrid culture, so they saw the book and loved it and then they're like, well, what about what about this? We talked about different, different subject matters and I was like, well, this is something that could be quite interesting. Mm. And... It was. I remember people asked, where, "Where do you get your information from?" And I was curious about yeah, that. Yeah, and it's funny you said about Twitter because uh, I I was subscribing. I subscribed. To, if you go through my what I who I subscribed to on Twitter, it's a bricolage of of a, a lot of different things. It's of course the, you know New York Times and so on, but it's all, I have a Al Jazeera and uh, a couple of Chinese news outlets. And also RT, which is like the Russian propaganda machine. Because the stories that come out there is not what you get in all the other media. Twitter's amazing. Twitter is so good. There's so much. You can find anything on there. And that's why I love it. It's true. And, you know, Al Jazeera, for example, is a wonderful news outlet. Yeah. They and, do and, and, so and, much great stuff. Yeah. And the, the lovely thing is you don't have to like anyone back or anything. You just like, it's, it's, it's like the customized radio feed. Yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, it's absolutely great. So I I, I kind of use that a lot to uh, source information, and you just need you just need a little bit of snippet, and then you get something. Or or then you can look into it more. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, another thing was uh, with hybrids, how I kind of gathered the information. I would some of it I would just dream up and think, does this exist? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because hybrids is pre-Twitter, right? Yeah. So was the idea of hybrids conceptualized before you knew of any of these specific things that you went and photographed? No, it kind of came as a as a work in progress. Uh, I was at Burning Man uh, with uh, Mass Burger, actually. He was a journalist there, and I was um, taking pictures. What year was this? This was 2004. That's early. Yeah, and... Um, we um we had a massive fallout, like uh, pretty catastrophic. We Burning were, Man at Burning Man. Yeah, we were we were in a in a four by four, and we didn't have a, a caravan or anything. So we were just sleeping in the in the boot, like in the like a covered pickup truck. So we had a we were sleeping in the back of a car. And for people who don't know, this is in the middle of the fucking desert. It is ten thousand degrees. It is dry. You need to bring all your own water. You need to bring all your own supplies. Yeah, and and it, the, everything will drive you insane. Yeah, and so we thought, okay, we, we're going to park this car away from people, and then two minutes later, uh, Mister Bubbles come along. He, he's a clown, and he's got the world record for the biggest soap bubble. He also talks clown, so he he, he just clowns all the time. If you want to be left alone, he's like, no, no, I'm clowning. And like, just, just go and clown, <laughs> just go and clown some wells. I can't stand you. Just go and clown some wells. So, so it, it was, it was too much. Then, um, 
there was all these characters. There's a, a guy called Cap- Captain Dandia because he he ran a marathon. He's like ultra marathon runner, but he he ran through the Afghan desert when the Russians had invaded. So there are these really kind of colorful characters. And when uh, Mance and I were working together, we we had this thing where uh, he obviously thought that journalism was the most important, and I would say photography is equally important. And we had to take this picture of, um, I can't remember his name now, the, the guy who actually founded Burning Man. And the sun was setting, and Matt was doing an interview. Then the sun set, and I was like, it's getting dark now. I was like looking at Matt, pointing at my watch and like signaling, and he just kept talking. And at one point, I just grabbed the gun and said, we're just going to walk over here, take a picture before the sun sets, and then you can continue the interview. Which I then did, got a few pictures, and here you go, Matt, continue. And Matt's had a freak out at me, said, you can't do that. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Anyway, so we're in the middle of the desk, and we had to go back to this car. <laughs> and having had this huge argument, and then the clown comes along and wants to sit and drink beer. So so Captain Bubbles, he has this like hat on that says his name, Captain Bubbles. And he's very short, and he's... Uh, you know, you, if you have an alpha man, alpha male, you would have a beta. And I don't know how far down the Greek alphabet I have to go to describe him. His wife had forced him to bring along a frog in a polystyrene box because he was digging a trench at home and he accidentally cut a leg off the frog and he couldn't um, kill the frog. So she said, if you can't kill it, you have to bring it to Burning Man. So Captain Bubbles had a frog in a polystyrene box. So he brought a you know, a frog to the middle of the desert. <laughs> and I'm sure it loved it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, Bobbers, if you want me, my dad's a bit like, if you want me to kill it for you, I can do that. Anyway, so he was just sat there talking and talking and talking. I think he could sense that me and Matt's had something that wasn't great. So just making nervous and he was talking even more. And at that point I thought, okay, Bubbles, you know, at some point we'll, we'll figure something out. And um, so... I really wanted to get an aerial shot of the whole of um, Burning Man <clears throat> so you could see the whole arch and the whole layout and everything. And as you know, you, you, can't, you can't bring money, you have to barter. And we met this pilot, I think his name was Hugh. He was wearing a, you know, a, um, a what's he called, a Ben Sherman a polo shirt. He looked like a skinhead, like small, mm-hmm. skinny suspenders, Tight, 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 uh, tight, tight uh, jeans and um, Dr. Martins with yellow lasers. But, you know, the really tall Dr. Martins that go up to just under the knee. The skinhead ones. Exactly, the skinhead <laughs> ones. And he was like, yeah, but what can you do? And I, it's like, what do you want? I want boy. It's like, excuse me? What do you want? I want boy. It's like, it's like, okay, I think we can work on that. So here's the thing. You take me on the plane. I'll give you a picture or, and I'll send that when you get back. And then... If you want boy, then there is this clown, and he might he might resist a little bit at first, but just tell him that I told him it's okay and that I agreed that on his behalf, and then um, then you just see what happens. <laughs> so we get off the plane, and then I was like, Matt, um, he he was there as well uh, on the flight. I was like, Matt, I think we should just go before we ever meet Captain Bubbles again. 
So time to move, Ken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's one of the most horrible thing I've ever done, but I, I'm sure nothing happened. But I I just thought it was it was a nice little message to send to the clown. So um, yeah, and that was that was so that was the whole start of of hybrids. And what got me thinking about hybrids because like basically, uh, Burning Man is one big hybrid. It's it's a mix mash of uh, concerts, drug taking. Um, seminars, uh, workshops, everything. Throwing off the shackles of society. Yeah, and it was it was really quite intense and quite uh, special. And I was working there and I was uh, sober. I didn't even, maybe I had one beer, but like, it was really very clean. And you see all of this and you take everything in. And just being there is really, really intense. I'm quite happy that uh, I didn't think you could bear it if anything else happened. And... That got me thinking about these kind of like techno hippies. That it was what was going on there was it was the whole dot the first dot com before the bubble was happening, and you had this like hippo hippie society, and you had something that was all of a sudden in this max max setting was seemed like the future, but it was the past because it was uh, Tim Tillery talk, it was uh, cyberpunk talk, it was. And I was like, "This is this. There's something going on here." And after um, I came back with the pictures, that's when I started the uh, the, the hybrids uh, project. See, what I find interesting about that is my natural tendency as a slow thinker would be just to focus on Burning Man. Then, but instead, you blew it up to a global scale and included things that happened in Chile and things that are happening in uh, was it Switzerland? Where was yeah, the snow polo? The snow polo, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember what else. Japan, uh, you know, there's just it's it, it's global. It's it's truly a global project. Do do you ever think like did it start like oh I'm just going to look at Burning Man or did you immediately no back I, up to a world? No, after I did that, that that's when I started doing the let's say the project description and started looking into various places. And of course, I was restricted by finance and time, and also some of these things happens once a year. So they, they, there's a in Brooklyn. There's a bike club called Black Rebel Black Black Rebel Bike Club, which is punk beyond punk. If you if you mix gladiator games with bicycling, that that's what it is. So it's basically a block party of controlled violence, hmm. uh, and it's amazing. And it happens once a year, and. I went there one year uh, just to, to experience it. And then I was like, hey, wait, this is would be good for hybrid. So I went back the next year uh, to photograph it. And then some of the other things I've researched and f- found out. And then I would also try and, and plan my work life. So it's like, oh, you have an assignment. Why don't we go and do that in Japan, so then I could shoot the uh, underground garden, for instance, and Smart. and so on. So there was a way of making this happen. Mm. And after I did hybrids, I thought to myself, I'm never ever going to do anything this complicated. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm done with complicated global projects. How long did it take you? Uh, it took about three four years. Yeah. yeah, and what I started next was it had like a working title called local. So I live in London Fields in. Um, well, in London, in Hackney, which is, uh, I've been there 13 years. Uh, and it was, when I was moved there, it was called, close to something called the Murder Mile. 
it was when I bought a house there, people were like, I oh, don't buy there, but you know, it's dangerous. And I was like, well, if I close the front door, I have a garden and that's fine. And uh, next door was a council house and there was like pot dealers there living there. And it, it was, it was pretty, it, it, it had a lot of color <laughs> in, in a good way. I thought it was, it wasn't completely gentrified. And, and the gentrification was, you could see that happening. There's a place called Boardroom Market where the, you know, nice little deli was opening, but there was still a really crappy fish shop that only sold uh, frozen fish. And so it had all of this translated. And I thought it could be quite good for me to kind of document that change. That would be interesting. So I started on a working project called Local and very soon realized when I saw what was happening that I'm, I'm not a street photographer and it's not what I'm good at. So... I started that and worked on that for a little bit. I was like, no, this is this is rubbish. I'm not good at that. And then I started various other projects. Um, I, I did uh, a thing about praying rooms mm-hmm. because I always had something about tolerance and, and change and things that are maybe slightly out of place. So pretty much every airport has a praying room. And uh, some of them get used for praying, some of them get used for sleeping, but they... Also remember, this is the the period, not shortly, not immediate after, but you know, nine eleven was still, you know, very it's much fresh on, the, on people's minds. fresh on the radar, and to have something where that's a multi-religious room within an airport really encapsulates the whole thing. What what where the world should be heading, but probably where it's not, uh, and you can kind of see the the treasury has ended where we are now, which is. A terrible place. So I started working on it, and and it was before you had digital cameras that were really light sensitive, and it was just, it just didn't work either. And uh, so it kind of did that a little bit. And these kind of projects were just for me to try out, trial and error, trial and error, test it, and and that's always been a, a big part of what I'm doing. Um, see if it works, and if it doesn't, then don't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. So how do you make that decision? Because personally, and I can only speak personally, it's very hard for me. I get tripped up inside of work and I get really um, confused about if something's working or not. And I will spend a long time finishing something and then realize it's not finished at all and have to go back and rework it. I also have given up a lot of projects because... Like you said, you look at it and you're like, this isn't what I'm good at, you know, but it's very hard to differentiate when it really comes down to it about these sort of things. What is it exactly that goes off in your brain where, you know, this is working or this is not working? Yeah. Um, I wish I had the answer to that because yeah. then, then I'll then probably come to some conclusions earlier. Yeah. I. Do you have to be necessarily harsh to yourself? No, but I think you have to. No, there's a couple of things that um, there's a couple of things I do. Um, so does it stand the test of time? So quite often when I was shooting film, I would process and then I'd leave the contact sheets for a few months and then I'd look at it and go, "Is it exciting or not?" Good idea. And then I do the same now. I shoot on long-term projects and then I look at it as like. Is it exciting or not? And then, then you don't have that bias. So 
you know what an investment bias is so let's say if you get to page 50 in a book you're more likely to read to page 60 and 70 and you're probably likely to finish the book right you don't feel like quitting even if you're not enjoying it and in a similar way if something has been particularly hard to do let's say you have to walk up a mountain four days to get to a shot to get a, a chunk of ice called a glacier and then you're like oh that was really hard. this is an amazing shot and then you, then you get back and three months later you look at that and like then you kind of forgotten how hard it was to walk, walk and then you can see that's not that interesting yeah. but it was a nice walk yeah. <laughs> so that's what i do and within within that process and i guess within what happened there because it wasn't all projects i scrapped um i started thinking about uh what was happening with climate change communication and how we could improve and maybe use art to communicate about climate change because that's something i'm i love the environment and and all my projects uh take place outdoors i love being outdoors um normally i would wear shorts you know, I wear shorts eight months out of the year. I absolutely love the cold. I'm always one layer less than everybody else. And when I was looking at what, how to address climate change, then, you know, glaciers really are the canaries uh, in, in the coal mine because they don't fluctuate with, uh, with weather, uh, annual weather patterns. It's really, you know, you can really, it's, they, 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 they function on a, on a different timescale. And they also making good incredibly good subjects they're very photogenic so i started looking at at that as a subject matter and then being a white male with a with a beard and a love for the mountains i realized that if i was just climbing mountains it would be the project would about be about me as a uh white male going in the footsteps of every other white male explorer that's been for the past 100 years and it wouldn't be about climate change you could just change your name to Knut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I did, I, I wanted Project Pressure to become um, like a networked project. So I uh, reached out to uh, a lot of people in the scientific community and set, pro- set up Project Pressure as a, as a non-for-profit in the, in the beginning. Now it's a charity. And um, we, we're, so we're collaborating with the World Glacier Monitoring Service. Um, so all the scientists from the different regions are involved. Um, some scientists from NASA involved. And so the whole scientific input and, and background and everything about the project is completely valid. Um, there's another conversation to be had about how art and science and how arts sometimes become pseudoscience and definitely don't communicate science accurately. And I think that was, that was a, a pitfall that I really didn't want the project to fall into that's a hard one because artists love to appropriate science yeah exactly often pretty sloppily yeah exactly it and it, it takes a lot of effort to um, to understand science so within that then we started putting together uh what would be the you know what would be the the kind of touch point and what would be the the idea of the project and that's when we realized, well, it, let's get together a group of artists that we commission and send out on expeditions and get a whole lot of artwork that has different ideas, different inputs, but all around the same subject matter. That's the overarch, which is climate change, which is uh, visualized through uh, glacier recession. And within that, we're also thinking, how could we get the public involved? How do we get them involved? 
And in an early conversation I had with Michael Semp, who's the director of the World Glacier Monitoring Service, I was asking, what can we do for science? Because you're helping us to validate what we're doing and pinpoint in the right directions and, and so on. He was like, well, what you really want to do is create comparative images. So comparative images, for people who don't know that, is like a historic image of a glacier and an image taken in the same position, and then you can see whether the glacier has advanced or recessed or uh, uh, gotten smaller. And using fairly complicated uh, math, you can also calculate the mass balance, which is the volume of the glacier, and then you can, with time, you can see what's happening exactly. And you can you can feed that data from that local position into global models, and it will help us get a more accurate picture of what's happening. So... There's about 300,000 glaciers globally. Uh, my estimate is that there, there might be 2,000 that are being measured at the moment. Wow, that's not very many. No, and that's why it's important to have comparative images. Mm. And you can basically, you can monitor glaciers. Why don't you just use satellites? Yeah, why That's not? what I would have guessed. Yeah, right? Exactly, and, and that's a very good guess, and that's the first thing I said, why not? Well, satellites only go back to the 70s if we're lucky. And some regions don't even have high-resolution satellites that are frequent. So that's not really an option. What science uh, scientists do, they do what's called direct measurement. So they basically go and put a stick in the glacier. And then they see in, in, after the winter and spring, what's the difference in the snow? And then they measure the 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 glacier area and then they can calculate the volume now that's very laborious and they have to go out and do that so the the glaciers that are that have direct measurements are the ones that are in close proximity of science so a lot of the european glaciers hence why having comparative images is a really good work tool for science so michael sent me was like well it'd be great if you could go back and photograph it and then I got this picture of myself as that little hamster in that wheel, and <laughs> and and and, and uh, except for the wheel was like rocking mountains, right? So almost it's not even a smooth wheel. <laughs> no, no, it was terrible. It was like like a, a grind full of ice and rocks, and and me just running forever. It was like the Sisyphus myth on on infinite loop. It was terrible, hmm. and out of that discussion came the idea of in, incorporating. People are making it a, a, a crowdsourcing platform. So we call it MELT, which stands for Mass Engagement and Listing Technology, which essentially is uh, other people's photography, as in use photography as data and have comparative images that way. So that's that's the next step. So we have all the artists we're working with within Project Pressure. We use that as a touch point to get people interested. That's more public engagement, right? People yeah. look at art and... Yeah, and then after they've done that, hopefully they they can contribute. So you don't have to walk to a mountain. It could also be, well, digging your uncle's drawer who was uh, up Mount Kenya in the 60s or somewhere else, right. walking the Alps in the 60s or whatever was happening. And, and you can upload archival images or you can go out and create new images. That feeds back to science and then it will actually help us get a – better understanding and, and better predictions of, of what's happening. And that's really important. Mm. As a, like, a, you know, it's, it's applied photography, right? It's, it's, it's using it beyond just as a visual storytelling method. 
and more as a uh, yeah and, a yeah tool. Ex- yeah exactly but i think if if we if we look at the uh, if we look at the the participatory platform photography becomes data because it's it's not a it's not a it's not an an art form anymore when you if you shoot something on an iphone that's just a a record of that it's, well, it doesn't necessarily have a lot of artistic value and it doesn't have to because it's the it's the it's the data we're after right. but at the same time if people do it in an artistic way and they, they it might be fulfilling for them so it's and that's i don't want to judge when it's art and when it's not and i quite frankly don't really care because it helps right. and and if it gets people motivated and involved i think that's a beautiful thing well i think it's a really good example of one of the things that strikes me about what you do because you have resisted uh any sort of um i don't know if it's personal or not but any sort of um limitation to photography as a tool or as a you know you can look at it in a lot of different ways um you use it as a, a form of making a living. Use it as a form of artistic engagement with the public. Use it as a form of data and uh, scientific engagement with environmental issues you're interested in. And, you know, someone like me, I'm a photographer. I shoot mostly with old cameras on film. I kind of am, I'm okay at digital photography, but not great. Lots of people are better, you know. And so I essentially have a very limited amount of, I can do what I do well, but it's fairly limited. And you seem to have not really paid much attention to any sort of discourse or specific area of photography. No, no, that's true. There's, um, there's, um, I was discussing photography once and, and I remember saying to somebody, well, there's kind of two kinds of photographers that the photographers that talk about lenses and then they're the ones that talk about the stories. And I guess I've always been on the on the on the storytelling side. I think it it, it kind of goes back a little bit to um, to what I what I was doing earlier, like with the collaborative projects, with uh, doing a magazine together with people. And as uh, frustrating it was not getting not getting the contributions that I was hoping to get, uh, it still taught me that if you do something in a collaborative way, you can really generate something that's that's quite amazing. And even though it's hard. Even though it's hard. And, and I think what's been really quite nice with Project Pressure is that it's, it's quite compartmentalized. So we have a photographer, a, a artist, whether it's uh, Peter Funk or Broomberg or Chanaran or um, Edward Patinsky or Naomi Goodall or whoever we're working with, they're doing one part and it's, it has a location, it has a timeline, it has them going off doing it. And we, as in Project Pressure, then support them. We help them. We help conceptualize the project. So it's let me let me be careful what I'm saying here. It's not that we conceptualize it for them, but we monitor and make sure that the scientific part of that project is is valid. And do you apply that to Edward Bertendinsky's work, for example? Yeah, we we make sure that it, that it has the uh, you know, has to has to have, that we have the background and that we have the knowledge about it. I mean, his his work is very simple because it's not that conceptual. It's it's actually just landscape photography in its purest form. So that's not very complicated. But let's say somebody um, like uh, Adam Broomberg and Oli Tanner, they wanted to do something about 
using glaciers as we're long discussions with them and they're they're really really uh, i've respect them immensely but they're also it, it's it's a, it's heavy it's a, stuff it, it, yeah and it's it's a it's a it's a whole milky way of ideas and it's all like dotted around and you really have to really go back to not just see a lot of dots but to see a treasury in the, in that path mm. i think that's a fairly good analogy actually mm-hmm. and 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 out of that came some conversations and some and and some talks about thinking of glaciers as memory machines because what's interesting is that a lot of with the with the recession a lot of things come out of them so there's uh, like pocket watches coming out there's uh, airplanes coming out there's you know bones from uh, exploring history yeah exactly and it's just popping out and and it sits really well within their body of work with their recording of of destruction and and war and so, and so on and and they had a really uh, really good take on it and so we organized for them to go to Switzerland and, and uh, help with the scientific uh, part and gained access to some of these archives to photograph these artifacts. And um, also um, we, uh, we thought it would be nice to maybe try and 3D scan some of it and then replicate the uh, 3D print some of the objects. So even though they're just replications and Interpret, not interpretations, but yeah, basically three D replications of those artifacts. It would be nice to 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 have something else than just two D photography at, uh, at as part of the exhibition. Right, because I was going to say this is moving into exhibition territory. Yeah, the arts context. Exactly. So, so what we've done so far, we we still have a few artists we are sending out this year, but we basically put together a traveling exhibition, and at the moment we're in talks with. Um, various museums uh, worldwide about hosting the show. So we have the Natural History Museum in Vienna uh, have confirmed, and I think the Science Museum in Shanghai, and we have an um, exhibition representative who's doing all of this. I think Hayward Gallery are interested. And so it's, it's becoming a, a very nice show that could go on the road. And that that's the idea of, that was, that was always the idea to have a touch point that would be the art. And then after that, uh, it would have hopefully a longer life. And the other thing that's interesting, when you look at relevance and engagement, normally you have an art project, you have the launch, and then the activity and the relevance just dwindles. And what we're just hoping with, with Project Pressure is that actually it becomes more and more relevant, and hopefully the activity and the engagement will increase. And as schools, the public get involved and and, and start using this as and it goes to the next phase, past that and towards the, the crowdsourcing of images, then it becomes a, a real public activity and, and it becomes more relevant. Right, and have more of, a, of an interactive platform. Yeah. Art is often one-sided in that way. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. But why didn't you, for example, decide to go the route of an artist? I'm just curious because you are, I mean, clearly you are working as an artist, but I mean the the typical professional make a living off of being an artist route. What was it that instead attracted you to freelance photography as a means of making a living as opposed to the freedom and, you know, slash grinding misery of being a, uh, a, a, a fine art photographer yeah, full that, time? That's a good question. I, I think with a lot of the projects I do, I have a, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing when, even if it's commercial work, I'm, I really am. Mm. 
and a lot of the projects I'm doing on, I get involved in very early, and I have a lot of say in, in what it is. And it's not as if there's a well, here's what you're doing, and you know, I get a script or like a layout, and that's what you're doing. And I'm I'm not necessarily hired as a as a technical person just to execute. People get me involved at a very early stage, and and I think what's really nice is that when people look at the different projects I've done and and long-term projects, various projects, and they can see, okay, this is interesting. So this person called Klaus, if we get him involved, let's hear what you have to say and how how would you develop it? So so I help develop a lot of projects for in commercial partnerships and 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 so on. So your function is as an artist, a creative at least. Yeah, it is, and it's also one one that I don't have to do everything. I mean, I I I've worked on projects where there's multiple photographers involved because I'm like I I'm don't have time for all this. So let me get other people involved. Let's get other people to help. Mm-hmm. And I th- I think the collaborative process is something that's really driving me as well. I really enjoy that. And if you're working as a if you're when I'm working as an artist just on, on, on my project, it, it becomes, you know, I'm ping my own belly button and that's that's the that's the feedback I'm getting and it's not very much feedback. Oh, I know it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean and that's and that's something that a lot of people struggle with is this sort of question of where should income come with, how much should I work with other people, how much can I work with other people? Um you know, I mean part of the reason that this podcast exists is a desire not to pick the own belly button it is to hear what other people are doing and apply that to everything else you know but at the same time you know you could say that you making an ad was it uh the the one in the cenotes uh oh yeah it's it's, uh yeah uh you know and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with project pressure or environment or art i mean it's exciting as shit i imagine diving in a cenote is amazing Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, no, but it doesn't necessarily connect. It gives you an opportunity, but it doesn't. I have for sure, and um, but also let's let's be honest. Some some of the uh, opportunities I have working within uh, advertising and commercial photography is that I I get opportunities that I wouldn't get otherwise. Um, some of the assignments I get for magazines, I was I think it was just recently published for New York Times. I was swimming with uh, whales in Tonga, uh, staying on a remote island, just. For the hell of it, no, not for the hell of it. I think the other one of the other concepts that's a you know that's a driving force across all my work is 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 mapping, and uh, I like the idea. And um, New York Times has these issues called journeys, and it's about the journey. And I was like, it would be nice to see how remote can you get from the remoteness. So, an uninhabited island in the middle of the ocean, that's just a dot you can't even see until you're very close and, and Google Earth gets very pixelated. That would be exciting to be there. So it definitely uh, allows some opportunities and some uh, some interest. But also when you talk about, let's say, the um, the, the guy in the Sonoti, that that came along as a... I was I was being commissioned to do a completely different shot I was being commissioned to photograph elephants swimming in the Andaman Islands. And if you Google swimming elephants, there's all these beautiful pictures coming up. And I think in India, they used to have 
they used to capture elephants and then use them within the army. And they, someone got trained to to swim. Hmm. Very few. And there's one. And I was like, okay, before we go out there, then let's make sure that it does swim. So um, the producer is like, yeah, but um, they're, they're saying yes. I was like, yeah. And it's India and they say yes to everything. <laughs> so I was like, if you look at a map, Thailand is right across the water. So send a doctor from Thailand over to inspect it. I want, I want it verified. And I was like, it's not going to swim. So we had to scrap that idea, and the, th- the idea was it was for um, for Johnny Walker Blue, which is a, a one of the, r- the rarest label, and it's about rarity. So that kind of made sense with the elephant somehow. It's a delicious whiskey. It's a very nice whiskey. So. <laughs> and so they were like, "What should we do then?" And then we were talking about different things to so a blue and rare, and we were talking about ice caves. And I was like, just throwing ideas out. And then one of the things that kind of stuck was the Sonota because they're blue, and um, I then suggested that we had a free diver because it looks much more elegant than all the equipment that we as scuba divers carry around. And um, then it was just there's no light in there. So that whole setup is completely lit and it's uh, it was quite a big undertaking. Yeah, and I followed it on Twitter. It was very <laughs> exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we developed systems to... Um, so basically... I'm 30 meters down in a hole, 50 meters back from the entrance. Right, this is a flooded cave. Yeah, and with a with an underwater Hasselblad housing on 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 a tripod in there. And I, I was researching how to get. So we had these rope systems that I've developed with some flashes hanging above the water. And I was like, how do I get a signal up there? So I was I was doing research into how U-boats transmit radio signals uh, on what frequencies and stuff, and it just we couldn't make it work. So in the end, we just found a really, really fine cable because there's also the resistance in a cable and the, but what's, what's important about it. And I think this is kind of what trans what, what goes with all my photography is that it just looks like that was a nice day and you took a great shot. And one of the working concepts I have across photography and, and, especially um, when I do things that are, whether it's film work, because quite often that's stage. So um, I work with the concept of believability. So I want everything to feel and look believable because my theory is that if you create a believable look and, and storytelling, people will connect with the story. There's no filter. I think the the one genre where you can do something that doesn't look believable at all and still get away with it is like if you do something that's humorous it's it's fine because it can look different and Martin and that's Parr. yeah and that and that's fine but i remember um when i was looking at lord of the rings when it came out and i think gandalf is is, is hugging frodo and you can see him hugging and then you can also see that there's so much dirt underneath his nails and it's just a really nice detail and there's small details like that that just makes it makes it believable and, and all of those small details are important. It's a lot of work also to keep track of all those details. It is indeed. It is indeed. That's wild. I mean, and I can see it. You like to solve things. That's what I'm starting to understand. Like you like to have a problem and then you like to try to solve it. And that way it's not just photography, it's a tool for solving issues. Like whatever. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure and, and um and yeah, and I I also always take uh, 
what you know my motive the stories that interest me are the stories i'm telling so in that way it's very egoistic but it's or you could say also it's a very motivating factor for me that i do things that i'm really interested in myself and then i try to work on those subject matters and and make them interesting for other people one of the things as i said in the beginning when um so i didn't have an education i just jumped straight into photography so i always had this idea that i was kind of I had this right as I did. I was kind of owed an education. That I was, in, I had an entitlement. That's the right word. I had an entitlement for, for an education. So, after I started working on Project Press, I actually started uh, a BSc, so a science degree in uh, environmental science, that I finished a year and a half, a half ago. So, that was something I did uh, alongside everything else, and it was hugely motivating because I was like I'm speaking to so many scientists anyway that it's nice to have that empowerment and background to do things accurately right to know what you're talking about exactly just saying hey you guys tell me what you know and i'll just take some pictures you know then you're actually hybridizing the two fields that you're interested in. exactly well i think it's interesting you just mentioned ego and ego is something i'm hugely interested in um not like the artist's ego so not ego in any of the like street sense but ego is the idea that like you have to have some ego to drive you forward um do you have it like do you have any thoughts about your own ego? Do you think about it or is it just full steam ahead all the time? Like how do you deal with No, I know for sure. I mean there there's um I've in particularly in the context of Project Press, I've been thinking immensely about it because at 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 one point uh, from one point of view, you could uh, I've been trying to put myself at least not in the background, but at least on level with everybody else involved. And and I did that from a from a point of view where I thought, well let let me put some mechanisms mechanisms in place that actually remove me some from some of the decisions. So then you can go hands off. So, yeah, so I so it's it that's why I set it up as a as a charity. So there's a board of directors that make decisions. Uh we also have uh, a memorandum and we have some, some things we agreed on on what should be the way we work. So for the traveling uh, exhibition, for instance, the curatorial process I'm not part of because I don't want to be part of it and I'm, because I'm biased. Part of that pool of work that everybody created on my, my work. And that's, you know, clearly I can't be part of that. And... Well, not clearly. A lot of people go ahead and put themselves in that situation. Yeah, for anyways. sure. But for sure. But I, I think it actually just evaluates them and the projects. And and I don't. Well, maybe. I mean, if you if you then really well really deep into it, maybe it is an ecosystem uh, idea to do that because at the end I want something better for me. But I mean, it, it gets yeah, it gets it gets more layered than the than the, than the the plot in Inception with the different realities and. We, you know, let's just stick with the out of the onion. But uh, for sure, there, there's definitely, um, there's definitely, a, um, I think there's definitely a drive that comes for me. But then when it comes to the output and the use, I'm quite happy for for that to to work in a different way. And mm. and, um, and yeah, I think that's probably that's one of the things I've been thinking about. You know, the ego. Um, but I think you have to, I think you have to have. Um, you don't have to, but it, it, it helps to have a big personality sometimes when you're doing projects and uh, and work as an artist. 
and definitely have a viewpoint. Um, you have to be certain. You have to know what you want, or at least what you're working towards. Or, yeah, or no, yeah, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure. I agree, actually. No, hmm. I think you have to you have to be willing to put a view forward, and then even if it's not a fully formed view, have the confidence to say, "This is something I'm working on. This is work in progress." Give me some feedback and then we work on it. Uh, because a, a lot of the time, that, that's, that's been the process I've been doing. And, you know, it, <laughs> I've definitely had my, my beatings in, in my career. Like, hey, this is shit. This is rubbish. This is, doesn't work. And rejections. And, and you just get up and keep doing it. And that's what I mean. I practice a lot. Because mm-hmm. you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And, and you have to enjoy the doing part of it because there's no end goal and and that that part of the process is it's i think it's an insight into how you're content with with your work process and and what you're content with well and self-doubt you know like what what role does self-doubt play in that because you can't be all ego either no 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 for sure full steam ahead you have to be able to like you said you have to be able to look at something go yeah this isn't good enough yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah, um, and, but still, the the element of time um, plays a plays a big factor in in, in the creation of my work. Um, I, I'm not sure whether Mullen thinks longer than everybody else. I'm I'm really not sure because I don't know. I don't have the comparison. Um, I can see some of the artists we're we're working with in Project Pressure. You know, they certainly take that time with some things, and other people just get it done and out the door and i don't think there's a right and wrong there but when it does come to reassessing a piece of work and is it actually good and where do you go from here i think it's also what are the what are the improvements you can do and the thing with photography that's so difficult you go out and capture and then you actually then you can't really do so much more. Of course, there's the post-production, but they, that that's not going to polish a turd. No. Whereas, editing is magic. Editing, yeah. like making a good edit is very hard. Yeah, but you still just have one frame that has to encapsulate the story and everything. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And and it's interesting working in, in moving images where all of a sudden you have much more. And you might have a segment that works, a segment that doesn't work. And... It's much more. It's a much more fluid process where you can you can shape it afterwards. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, and I guess to wrap it up, then you can talk about this film you're making, uh, which is is done or soon done or. Yeah, no, I, I just finished. Um, so actually, going back to that that uh, free diver in Mexico, um, um, in the cenote in Mexico, that really kicked off something for me because it's it's a very pristine environment. Um, the Yucatan is amazing. Yeah, it's a very pristine environment. The visibility in the cenotes is is really really good. It's not polluted yet, but there's a lot of uh, things happening over there. And after um, I've been going back and f- back there a lot, and um, I love cave diving and and have a huge fascination with this. And as I'm not climbing that many mountains to go up to the ice anymore. I'm like, this is this is a really nice place to be. <laughs> I'll go down. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> what I started to look at, so I started to think about um, about systems and, and part of the uh, environmental education uh, that I took was 
was looking at systems and system system thinking and system analysis and so on. And we always talk about these systems. And then I was thinking about these different ecosystems and you have that. And I was like, hey, well, hold on, because it's not it's not different ecosystems. You have water, it comes in and it comes out and it's just, it, it flows. It's one big thing. So you might have this and out. So, so that's, that's a rainwater comes in there. But it sits on this huge lens of salt water that is connected. And you can just put a finger through the, the mirror that divides the, the salt and the fresh water. So they're connected. So that's not two different systems. Then it flows out towards the sea. So the underwater rivers and the sea, essentially it's the same because that's the same water there as well. And then I thought, if we look at this from an environmental perspective, how do we tell that story so people get it? Because what's happening on the Yucatan with the, let's say the system approach and how certain areas are being marine protected areas, but then the inland area is not being protected. So basically, my, my motivation for this film is incredibly selfish. I love diving dysonosis, and I, I want them to be protected. So what's happening is uh, one of the places where UN has really succeeded, uh, let's not talk about climate change and the COPs, because that, that's definitely not the areas. But when it comes to marine protected areas, the UN is actually doing an incredibly amount of really, really great work. Hmm. Uh, most countries globally have signed up to uh, creating 20% marine protected areas worldwide so the announcements that we we're getting is partly because of that so the mexican government have announced a huge marine protected area all the all the way along the coast but it stops on the coast and if you don't take care of the inland which is the same water that is in the sea because but you just can't see it from the top but it's it flows on the ground then it doesn't matter. You can see that here in Denmark with all the pesticides that are. Yeah, going into so the water. if you if you make a golf course and you put uh, nitrons in that new uh, nutrients, it's just going to flow out to the reef and create algae, and the the reef's going to die. And so we need to do something about it. So I thought let's let's try and create a. F- I wanted to create a film that was really exciting to look at and kind of told that story in a in a simple way. So taking something as cl- complex and as complicated as the aquifer and the whole uh, complex uh, journey that water goes through and they'll try and explain that so that that's what flows is about so it starts with a dive jumping into a zenote on land swimming through a tunnel network and we pop our head up in the sea hmm. so you can physically see okay this is a journey and then i think one of the things that are different with the film is not narrated it's interviews with local people that are dealing with these issues so again, give the voice to other people and let them let them be the voice. So that's what I like to do a lot of the time. Mm. So what's going to happen with the movie? Is it no? I was just thinking. Telling? Actually, we've we've heard me talk for an hour, and I was like, I'm saying, yeah, I like to give the voice to other people. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, 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 great. Hey, hey, well, for the for the record, I did invite you. So. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. What's it? What, is the film coming out soon? Can people see it? Is there any sort of plugging we can do here for it? Mm. We, we're looking at distribution options at the moment. So okay. that, that's what's happening at so the moment. So keep your eyes peeled. Keep an eye on your website, all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come here. No, thanks for letting me join. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Under Gang Armchair. Intro and outro music was kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by Arcee. 
You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations with great people on our mountain climber of a website, undergang.net. If you like this show, we would appreciate it if you'd take the time to leave a review on iTunes so others can find us. The show is produced with the kind support of the Danish Arts Council. Thanks for joining us.